0: Hello, and welcome to Ipsa a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guests are Lori D. Johnson, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, William S. Boyd School of Law, and Melissa Love Koenig, Associate Professor of Legal Writing at Marquette Law School. We will discuss their article, Walk the Line, Aristotle and the Ethics of Narrative, which is published in the Nevada Law Journal. So welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Yeah. No, I'm really looking forward to talking about this paper. It was really interesting. And I love articles about legal writing because it always makes me think about my own writing. So in this paper, you talk about the role of narrative and storytelling in law. I I wonder if you could say a little something about sort of how you think that works and why it might be a problem or something we should be kind of thinking about.
1: Sure, I can take that one. I think our perspective on this paper came to light because uh, Professor Lovekoning and I were talking um, in our classical rhetoric working group, which launched the idea for the symposium in which this article is published. Uh, we were talking about sort of some of the modern problems in legal persuasion and advocacy, and how we could think about using classical rhetoric as a lens to address those problems, and specifically problems that we've seen both in practice and then in our teaching in terms of the risks associated with the use of narrative in advocacy and the ways in which the typical structures or the existing structures for ethical guidance on those issues just haven't evolved as the applied legal storytelling movement has evolved over the past 30 years. Um, The applied legal storytelling movement being sort of a broad collection of scholarship dealing with the application of narrative and storytelling skills and uh, techniques in legal advocacy, but not just advocacy. Also, I've written some papers about its use in transactional drafting. So it's broadly applicable, the idea of narrative and storytelling in various aspects of the law, but as this technique has developed and grown, the ethical guidance hasn't kept pace with what we're seeing and what you read about in the article in terms of the real effectiveness and the psychological power particularly of these techniques and how very skilled advocates or advocates who are quite skilled in the use of narrative and storytelling can run a risk of crossing ethical boundaries in terms of that psychological power of the story, particularly in the context of fact-telling, which is the focus for this article.
0: So maybe you could talk a little bit about exactly how and why storytelling can become a problem and maybe give an example or two of how lawyers might kind of cross the line in some circumstances.
1: I think Melissa has a great example of that and one which we highlight in the paper with regard to uh, the Brendan Dassey case in Wisconsin, which uh, she's familiar with. So maybe we can talk about that a little bit in terms of just putting a, sort of putting a face to the issue. And then I can give a little more technical background from the perspective of the rules.
2: Yeah. So problems can occur for attorneys in a number of ways, but one A good example, I think, is the Brendan Dassey case, which I think a lot of us are familiar with um, from um, the press, if nothing else, but that was the um, horrible rape and murder of Teresa Halbach in Wisconsin. Stephen Avery was um, uh, accused of of, um, those crimes, and in the course of the litigation, the attorneys, uh, both for Mr. Dassey and for the prosecution, had a difference of opinion in terms of how the chronology of events occurred, and that plays out in the briefs. Um, so that's a very easy example of where a, a difference in the narrative relating to something very basic like chronology can um, can really be A problem and can take up space in the briefing um, as the attorneys are attempting to discuss what is different about their view of the chronology of events um, and how that plays into the narrative.
1: And I think the use of narrative there is really interesting in terms of each side having the ability to set the narrative in terms of the facts. The interesting thing about that, from the perspective of the ethical rules, is that the ethical rules require attorneys to present. Um, problematic law, but do not have a corollary obligation to present problematic facts. And what the model rules rely on is the adversarial system in the hopes that the use of the adversarial system will lead to any problematic facts being discovered through discovery by opposing counsel. And when we teach professional responsibility, as I do, I find myself often exhorting students to rely on the adversarial system and their diligence, their fact-finding to flesh out problematic facts or facts that could be helpful from their perspective. The issue becomes when a brief writer in retelling facts uses narrative or storytelling, particularly some of these really um, nuanced and psychologically effective strategies that we talk about in the article, such as stock stories. When an opposing fact teller uses those stories, that can prime the reader, the judge, Uh, in terms of thinking about the story in a certain way. And there are aspects of narrative theory, particularly narrative correspondence, which will then lead that reader psychologically to prefer or to desire a particular outcome on behalf of a particular client. And in some of the scholarship from the applied legal storytelling movement that we cite in the article, you can see how It's even suggested by uh, scholars of legal writing and narrative to frame the facts in terms of a particular story that places your client in a protagonist's role. In doing so, you prime that listener, that judge, to sort of side with or desire an outcome beneficial for That particular client. Opposing counsel is then required to respond to that narrative, but is often sometimes already at a disadvantage in terms of the psychological impact of the fact telling. Now, typically, if an attorney is a skilled advocate, they have the opportunity to present their own narrative of the facts, um, hopefully in the most, again, compelling way. And the adversarial system what we rely on in the rules is there to permit each side to have that opportunity. The problem becomes when that fact telling goes beyond a simple framing of a client in a positive light or use of a stock story to sort of um, help a judge or jury side with a particular client into where the facts become misleading, where the chronology is perhaps skewed um where and where the story and the narrative can have the ability to somewhat um i guess cloak that misleading uh retelling of the chronology of the facts and the issue there becomes when does that cross the line into an ethical violation and at this point from the ethics rules there's no bright line rule in terms of when that might occur so we don't get to see okay at this point the use of a story becomes Becomes problematic. We do see in other contexts in terms of um, opening statements and uh, closing statements. And um, Justice Gorsuch, when he was a judge uh, at the appellate level, actually admonished an attorney for using language um, with regard to instructing a jury to put themselves in the shoes of a client and said that was problematic. But we don't have necessarily the precedent in terms of fact telling. And I think. In some cases, that's because of the evolution of the model rules over time towards zealous advocacy, towards using zealous advocacy as the touchstone and relying on that adversarial process. And what happens is with regard to fact-telling, there's no concrete rule requirements rule requirements that define what is misleading. And that's really what we need and what was our goal in terms of looking to classical rhetoric. How can we look to some of the teachings of classical rhetoric, which uh, Melissa and I read about and studied in our classical rhetoric working group, to provide guidance to advocates who want to use these evolving tools of persuasion and narrative in ethical and balanced ways. And is there a way that we can use Aristotle, particularly, who was the focus in in this paper, to provide some guidance to attorneys. And we looked at both possibly rule-based guidance and aspirational guidance. But we determined in the end that aspirational guidance would be the best vehicle for the use of Aristotle's teaching here, in part because when the model rules were initially drafted, um, they evolved from the canons of professional conduct to the code of professional conduct, and then into the rules in the late 70s and early 80s. The Kutak Commission, who was working on the rules, actually considered a rule that would require um, that would require attorneys to reveal um, facts known to a lawyer, which would probably have a substantial effect on the determination of a material issue. So a requirement to disclose uh, harmful facts that was outright rejected, not included in the rules. So our determination was that rule-based regulation has already been rejected by the drafters, by the ABA in drafting the model rules. And beyond that, how effective how effective can it be when the tools of narrative and persuasion are all constantly evolving so the better approach we determine would be aspirational guidance to attorneys and we look to aristotle for that
0: well so one of the things i thought was really interesting about this paper was that in my experience normally when lawyers and law professors talk about legal rhetoric, everyone's really big on narrative and storytelling and they talk about how great it is. And you kind of insert a note of skepticism or questioning. And I wonder if you could give like an example, like particular example, whether it's the Brandon Dassey case or one of the other examples you give in the paper of circumstances where legal storytelling might sort of run off the rails a little bit.
1: I think in that case, it was the the way that the facts were put into a timeline in attempting to tell a story. And uh, the, the prosecution looked at that timeline, the way it was prepared in the story and determined that it was actually, and it became an inaccurate timeline because the lawyers used the facts put them in an order that worked from the perspective of telling a story, from telling a compelling story, and all of the facts themselves were accurate. None of them were false. And that's where the rules step in. The rules only step in with regard to false or, misle- false or misleading facts. So putting facts in a different order in terms of framing them in terms of a story is does not rise to the level at this point of causing a violation of the rules under either 3.3 or 8.4. And what happens is it creates a huge cost in terms of time, for opposing counsel to have to deconstruct that narrative, rewrite the narrative in a more compelling way, um, and it doesn't necessarily lead to the type of sanction or uh, ethical enforcement because it just doesn't rise to the level of a rule violation. So I think that's a particularly interesting example where the facts were put into a slightly different chronology to, to... keep with sort of a a narrative flow that then created problems from the perspective of opposing counsel. There's another example in the paper, a more positive example, which you're right, Brian, in terms of narrative and storytelling are extremely effective legal writing tools, tools of legal advocacy. But the problems here are that the rules haven't kept up with this sort of explosion of the study and then the use of narrative in terms of thinking about when does it go too far? Um, though, ex- another example in the paper is with regard to the use of a stock story called The Quest. Um, so framing your client in terms of sort of on a moral high ground, striving toward uh, achieving a goal, almost a like Don Quixote type of situation and using that in terms of this was a payday loan case. So um, the drafters of payday loan regulations were on this quest to prevent um, sort of loan shark type behavior and were successful in doing so. That was a successful use of story. But you can see, I think, where the compelling nature of the story and the lawyer's own desire to tell the client's story can sometimes lead down a slippery slope. And that's why I think we titled the article Walk the Line. It's that slippery slope of wanting to frame your client in a storytelling way. The psychological power of story is such that even the attorney telling the story can sometimes become um, sort of persuaded and want that narrative correspondence, want that outcome, or want the facts to fit into that narrative timeline or structure when perhaps they don't, and when perhaps doing so becomes misleading and crosses the line into um, ethically gray. I wouldn't say it's not a black and white issue, but into an ethically gray situation.
2: I wanted to add to that um, something that I've talked about with my students, which is uh, my personal interest in this um, article stems in part from discussions I've had with my students where they've said, Professor Love Koenig, how far can I go in taking the answers in a deposition and recrafting them in my story? What word choices can I use and how far can I go with that? And I think that's a very difficult answer. And I think that that speaks to the model rules um, and the guidance that we, we get. But it's also really a word choice, uh, almost a linguistic question that we have to ask ourselves as we are either writing down the story um, in a brief or telling the story to a jury or to um, whatever audience we happen to be telling the story to in our persuasion. And that is a very difficult question to answer. Um, Something that we, so I started to think about, well, what, what would be the answer to that? And um, in my own um, research, um, Aristotle's discussion of these points in his work on rhetoric and his Nicomachean ethics were what seemed to speak to me the most. And what he really talks about there um, gets to the concept of the mean, which we, we all are familiar with, I think, on some point. Um, and it can be defined as the midpoint between excess and deficiency. And we can think about that. Um, I think translate that to our own legal practice in terms of the mean between zeal and candor. Um, and so, so this idea of using the mean and thinking about walking between. Um, those two points of zeal and candor, I think is very helpful when we are assessing, you know, literally sentence by sentence, are we misrepresenting the facts here in the way we are crafting our story?
1: And one of the interesting aspects of that is that the rule with regard to candor to the tribunal, the rule that's m- the most likely fit for the problem of is a legal narrative that reorders facts that picks and cherry picks from a deposition to to craft a narrative story, when does that cross the line? Uh, ethics scholars have noted that rule model rule 3.3, which is the rule that requires candor toward the tribunal um, with regard to facts, restricts you from presenting false facts, but with regard to law goes further and requires you to reveal, um, adverse authority. So with regard to facts, there's less of an overt requirement uh, or there's no overt requirement at all to reveal bad facts, but it doesn't give a floor in terms of when you're using otherwise true facts, when does a narrative construction of those facts cross the line into falsity? That's the line that's missing. So when Melissa and I looked at this problem, we thought it really needs to be more of an intrinsic motivation on the part of the attorney to think about where where am i comfortable in this balance between zeal and candor how can i be sure that i am walking that line appropriately when the rules aren't giving me enough guidance here and in doing so it's sort of a conscious daily formation of what what is currently referred to as virtue ethics, right? The development of character over time. And it's a very interesting concept for me in teaching professional responsibility, which I also do in addition to legal writing and skills, in thinking about professional identity formation and the ABA's um, sort of renewed focus on that as one of the learning outcomes that they're requiring law schools to um, motivate in their students. How do we instruct our students in using these really helpful tools effectively, efficiently on behalf of their client, but also making sure that they don't wander into that gray area. And what I often see when I'm teaching ethics is it is at those moments at the height of litigation where we're in a very stressful situation. Um, an attorney is having to make split second decisions with regard to, um, which evidence they're going to put forth, how they're going to craft a fact section. It is at those moments that having developed a professional identity of within that mean, right, of of a balance between zeal and candor, of personal virtue ethics, can assist an attorney in not making that bad decision. Because often cases we teach in professional responsibility are motivated by sort of those um, high emotion Split second decisions that attorneys have to make, where things um, tend to, as you said earlier, Brian, run off the rails.
0: As law professors and as attorneys, we tend to think that, like, you know, narrative is great because it's so effective. And we mostly talk about sort of how to do it better. And more effectively. And in the paper, you suggest that maybe we ought to be a little bit more concerned about whether the way we use narrative is consistent with our duties, our ethical duties, our professional duties as attorneys. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about specifically how Aristotle. And Aristotle's ethics are helpful in understanding how we might think about that problem.
1: If I can start um, with just sort of crystallizing the problem a little bit, and then Melissa um, can dive in a little deeper to the Aristotle, but Brian, I think you're capturing something really important. and there has been quite a bit of scholarship emerging scholarship in terms of thinking about, the potential pitfalls and problems of the use of narrative. I've written a couple articles about it in terms of, uh, in the contract drafting context, the use of narrative there. Uh, Helena Whalenbridge is another wonderful scholar as well as Steve Johansson, and I've sat on a panel with them earlier, um, several years ago on an ethics panel where we talked about the fact that this is an overlooked, I think an overlooked area in terms of ethical regulation, the debate and the dispute, particularly between the two of them, they have a great dialogue about it is, is this a rulemaking question or is this more of um, an ethical like virtue ethics question? So Melissa and I came down on the sides of, on the side of thinking about, professional identity formation, virtue ethics, because the rulemaking simply wouldn't be effective where we've got a gray area like this. So narrative is great. We want our client, our students to be zealous advocates. We want attorneys to be zealous advocates and use narrative appropriately. But we need to think about those potential risks um, where we transition into maybe even an 8.4 violation in terms of misleading the court. Um, so we look to Aristotle to sort of try to help us answer that question in terms of aspirational guidance.
2: Yes, that's right, Laurie. And when we're thinking about Aristotle's teaching, Aristotle in his rhetoric talks about the importance of character to an argument. And we think about that in modern terms as developing your credibility with the court or with the jury. And we we all know that if a person loses their an attorney loses their credibility with the court or with the jury, their argument is sunk. And uh, Lori and I were, were discussing this um, today, actually, in preparation for our meeting, that it's, it isn't just the attorney's credibility, but it really impacts the client. It's the client whose case is being devastated by the attorney's lack of credibility. And so how do we develop our credibility? How did we develop our professional character? Um, And Aristotle speaks about that in both texts, but I think in the Nicomachean Ethics, he makes some really excellent points where he talks about that you really need to develop your character on a daily basis by practicing good habits, practicing good habits of good judgment, good work habits um, you are, as an attorney and as a human being, according to Aristotle, a being at work. It's what you do and, and the, the feedback that you get, the learning by doing that's so important, which really ties in beautifully to our practices as attorneys because as attorneys, we are doers. Um, we are problem solving and we are doing on behalf of clients. And so in those moments of elevated stress that we have in the courtroom or when we're writing a brief or drafting a contract even. In moments of great stress or when we are faced with an ethical dilemma, according to Aristotle, our daily habits, all the things that we did 365 days of the year prior to that to have good ethical judgment are going to come into play to help us make the instant judgment calls that we need that will walk that balance, um, walk the means, so to speak.
1: And I think what's interesting about our paper is that we really try to emphasize that aspect of lawyers as doers, Right of the development of character and the constant work that needs to be done to maintain a good character. Whereas the existing rules, even model rules, even in their aspirational um, portions, which are, are sometimes not even enforceable uh, in certain jurisdictions, but in the preamble to the rules, in the aspirational guidance that's existing it, it is much more of a fixed mindset as opposed to a growth mindset, which is something we often hear about now um, in terms of educating young lawyers, uh, in terms of attorneys developing um, good work habits. The existing model rules talk about the existence of your good character, relying upon it to make these decisions. Whereas the language we propose to include in the preamble much more focuses on the constant striving and the development and consistent growth of character over time. And only through doing that and being sort of constantly aware of the development of our character, the development of our professional identity, can we be poised in these, in these rhetorical moments, right? These important rhetorical moments where we're making these decisions for our clients. How far do I go in this argument? Right. We believe our additional comment, which we propose to the preamble, is that lawyers should strive to be people of good character and maintain good habits. It's not a fixed existing sense of um, good character or personal conscience. It's a constant work in progress. And over the term of the attorney's Uh, over the term of the attorney's career, which is very important and I think also plays into what we're seeing in a lot of different jurisdictions in terms of enhanced focus on lawyers' professional identity and professional development. Uh, You see it in many different jurisdictions. I'm not sure if there's anything um, in Kentucky, but at least in Nevada, in Florida, North Carolina, other jurisdictions are coming out with these professionalism guidelines, which are not codified in the rules, but are much more focused on attorney's good habits, um, attorney's professional behavior. And we're seeing also requirements for Uh, the various jurisdictions state bars requiring CLEs on substance abuse and on mental health. And that all plays into this idea of... The consistent work and development of good character as helping attorneys, particularly in these gray and emerging areas, like the one we discuss in this article. Um, you know, the use of narrative has only developed over the past 30 years in terms of a scholarly discipline, and we're beginning to see its real strength and its power. Uh, and it is a, a wonderful tool, but we need to think about. With regard to other types of emerging issues in the law as well, Uh, lawyers' use of technology, AI, for example, um, or even some of the evolving issues coming out of COVID, thinking about how we consistently strive to maintain strong character um, and including that in the rules in a real active way, in a way that the canons and codes of professional responsibility had in the past, which was sort of parsed out of the current model rules in favor of a more prescriptive, um, type of regulation, right. As opposed to sort of a more aspirational, um, growth mindset oriented, right. I would, I would say, uh, discussion of how we as lawyers continue to maintain our, our ethical compass over time.
0: Well, so this is maybe kind of a little inside baseball, but as someone who also teaches professional responsibility, I have always felt that the duty of zealous advocacy doesn't receive the attention it deserves uh, in terms of how we think about professional responsibility. And I really felt like your paper did a really interesting job of engaging with that problem. And I I wonder if you could reflect on that, and how Aristotle might help us better understand the duty of zealous advocacy.
1: I think just to echo something that Melissa touched on a few minutes ago with regard to the attorney's sort of reputation and character, I think that's one way to think about this. In terms of The model rules, not necessarily providing bright line rules in terms of the use of some of these emerging, um, both rhetorical skills or technical skills that we're seeing. So the risk of sanction and the risk of ethical discipline is relatively low. And you see that in the paper. There There are not many published cases where an attorney has been disciplined or sanctioned um, well, that's a whole different issue of inside baseball as to whether discipline and sanctions are used as effectively as they could be or should be, right? But the real um, the real risk, as Melissa pointed out, we can see the risk as more of a risk that you will lose credibility. But who does that actually harm in the end? Not necessarily the attorney, who's not going to necessarily be disciplined or sanctioned, but the client whose case is going to be impacted um, when their attorney's argument is viewed as less credible, right? So. I think that's just sort of one aspect of the zealous advocacy piece is you can be too zealous, right? And in doing so, end up harming the client's argument and end up harming the client's case. And so I think Melissa can reflect a little bit on on the Aristotle work and how it sort of talks to that issue. But I think what we need to think about in Anita Bernstein's work that we cite in the paper as well is really helpful on this point, balancing candor with zeal. And that balance is something that Aristotle really points us to.
2: Yes, we really um, liked her piece on zeal, her article on zeal, and, and cited to it. Um, and she comments in, in her article about developing zeal in young lawyers, um, in part, by giving them the opportunity to actually work with clients and to, um, to feel that passion um, for the client's case directly. I, I thought that was a, a very compelling point that she made
1: and i think aristotle would speak to that in terms of thinking about the, the power of rhetoric right um, thinking about the ability of the attorney to harness that rhetoric but at the same time to stay grounded in you know stay grounded in good moral character which is something very special and unique i think about aristotle's writings on rhetoric it's not a handbook right so if you look to other classical uh, classical rhetoricians if you look to cicero or others you you much you see much more of a handbook in terms of how do you argue, right? What are the skills of argumentation? What is the structure of argumentation? Aristotle's reflections, particularly in the on rhetoric and the Nicomachean ethics, go much deeper into thinking about the purposes, right, behind zealous advocacy, um, to thinking about the character of the speaker, who in Greek times was typically the client, him or herself, well, himself, no, her at that point probably, but himself speaking and orating on his own behalf. Now we have a separate layer inserted there where the attorney speaks on the client's behalf. So that obligation of having credibility and good character, I think is even heightened um, in our current legal system where we speak on a client's behalf. So we have to stay cognizant of our reputation, of our professional reputation and the development of that over time. And I I think Aristotle speaks to that in a really important way in terms of the lawyer as a doer, the lawyer as developing uh, character over time. Rising beyond minimum standards, right? Each attorney sh- needs to kind of intrinsically think about, and the the code of professional responsibility, which um, predated the model rules now, actually in, um, encourage the attorney to intrinsically think about how can your behavior rise above the minimum standards that are required here? That's what Aristotle speaks to in the ways that even other classical rhetoricians or even um, in some cases, um, modern rhetorical texts don't speak to. Which we need, I think, in this con particularly in this context of the use of narrative.
0: So in closing, Lori, Melissa, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what we can do to implement these ideas practically as attorneys, as members of the bar, as people who are training students to become attorneys. Like, how can we take these insights about rhetoric from Aristotle and help us sort of do better in relation to our clients and in relation to justice?
2: So, Brian, um, really, this comes down to the preamble's discussion of personal conscience. And I think that what Aristotle contributes is um, a way of approaching our own personal conscience when we are faced with decisions. So I think that's really important. And a, a key takeaway here is the idea that we should all be thinking and really talking and reflecting on our decisions and our personal conscience behind the decisions that we make as attorneys. And the idea that every day we need to be um, practicing good habits, and th- reflecting on what our um, judgment calls were that day, and whether we did a good job that day, or whether we didn't do a good job, and how would we do a better job. I think another practical takeaway here is that we should actually be talking about points related to our conscience, our personal conscience, and how we're we are doing our best for our clients um, while keeping our, our personal conscience intact.
1: I think it goes to Melissa's point earlier about experiential education uh, and skills-based education in law school. I think that is one of the only ways we're going to actually implement, you know, some of the Carnegie Report stuff um, that in the ABA's enhanced um You know, focus on learning outcomes and professional identity formation. We need to be talking about these things with our students. We need to also be exposing our students to these types of decisions, um, providing I love that an article like this we provided some sort of concrete examples from the dassey case the payday loan case that, that students can look at but I endeavor to do that in my teaching as well I use in when I teach professional responsibility video clips audio clips showing and asking the students right then in that moment what would be what decision would you make what's the motivation for that decision we need to begin to talk about those Uh, underpinning, you know, sort of personal conscience motivated decisions, those intrinsic rather than extrinsic motivations to behave. Because we can see that the extrinsic motivations in the rules can be flawed. They may not fully capture the problem because it's an evolving problem or the guidance that's provided may be insufficient um, due to, you know, the The focus on um, the adversarial system as sort of the panacea to fix all of these problems. If we have an adversarial system, both sides are going to do their work and the facts are going to come out. We know that doesn't always happen. So demonstrating that for students, getting students in front of clients, and even junior and young attorneys, mentorship is going to be a huge component of this. And making sure that as they're being exposed to these types of decisions, whether it's in a simulation, as we do in the legal writing classroom, or... um, experientially in a clinical setting or elsewhere, making sure we're talking about that with the students, thinking about how to guide them toward the constant improvement of character in in the mode of Aristotle.
0: Well, Lori, Melissa, thanks so much for coming on the show today. I really enjoyed this article and thought it was excellent, and it will be included in my professional responsibility casebook under Zealous Advocacy, because I think you had a lot of really valuable and thoughtful insights on how to think about that question.
1: We love hearing that. We really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, we certainly do. Thank you so much, Brian, for the invitation. We loved sharing our ideas, and we're always um, excited to talk to anybody who would like to reach out to us with additional thoughts or questions. Mm-hmm.
3: Philosophy, the wisdom of the ages is philosophy, so rise and shine, life's divine, if you will just embrace philosophy, 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 yes there are many philosophies on many subjects, take love for example. Volumes have been written praising love in all its glory The poets and the playwrights try to tell the inside story They don't know what love is so I'll bring them to their senses It's oceans of emotions all surrounded by expenses Philosophy, philosophy Tony, what are your ideas on passion? Well, philosophically speaking, passion's been in fashion since the world was first created. The philosophic truth is that it's greatly overrated. Let's consider passion, it will only bring you sorrow. The fire of the evening is a false alarm tomorrow. Philosophy, philosophy. Mr. Martin, have you ever considered marriage? Well, only remotely. Let's consider marriage and its many varied pitfalls. When Cupid throws the knockout punch, be careful where his mitt falls. The sleep you lost in courtship when you spent all night adoring continues after marriage, but it's only cause she's snoring. Well, that takes care of love, passion, and marriage. Is there anything left? Yes, there's always alimony. A marriage made in heaven often winds up in a fracas. The judges aren't biased, yet the ladies always take us. Consider alimony, monthly payments are the least thing. While you're reduced to fasting, she and someone else are feasting. Philosophy, that's my philosophy. The wisdom of the ages is philosophy. Come on, let's all rise and shine. If you will just embrace philosophy, you'll have no trouble. <laughs> you need philosophy.